Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests here with me in the studio. First, a historian and specialist in women's history for the Church History Department, Lisa Olson-Tate. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Ben. Glad to be here. And joining us again is our good friend, Shailen Back. She's recently had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and will share her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Shailen. Hi, thank you for having me. Lisa, we are so grateful that you would come and talk with us today about chapters 40 and 41 of Saints, because we're going to learn a little bit about, well, a lot about plural marriage in Nauvoo. This is one subject that I think is misunderstood, it's avoided, and it's something that we need to understand better about our past. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the situation with plural marriage in Nauvoo in the early part of 1843? Who, who's in the know? What's going on? At this point, Joseph has been introducing plural marriage gradually and secretly for about two years among the most trusted leaders and associates of his in the church, primarily members of the Quorum of the Twelve. And at this point, the number of people that are involved in plural marriage is very small, probably less than 20 men total, and then maybe a few more women than that. So the members of the Quorum of the Twelve are have been taught the principle. Only a few of them have actually entered into it and begun to practice it at this point. So it's still a very small number of people. And Joseph often would kind of test out people. He would introduce the idea in a general way to test people's reactions. And then based on their reactions, he would decide whether to to go further with telling them about it. And so based on those kinds of interactions, he has not even told other members of the First Presidency fully about it at this point. So Hiram, his brother, uh, William Law, who are counselors in the First Presidency, they are not fully in on the whole doctrine and practice. So Lisa, you were referring to it as plural marriage. And I remember reading in the book that they those who practice it didn't call it polygamy. And so right. I'm wondering why not? Right. Well, we have to remember that the events covered in these chapters in early 1843 are coming in the wake of the John C. Bennett scandal and the fallout from his expose and and all of the wild accusations and stories that he was spreading about Joseph Smith and then his own practice that had been revealed of what he called spiritual wifery. And so those who understood plural marriage as Joseph taught it according to the revelations, understood that to be something different than these corrupt versions of basically adultery, immorality that John C. Bennett and others were advocating and practicing. And so in their own minds, there is this distinction. Emily Partridge says we called it celestial marriage. 
that that plural marriages being taught by by Joseph Smith can be distinguished from these other terms like polygamy and spiritual wifery and so forth. Okay, thank you. So Joseph's two counselors in the first presidency are William Law at this point and Hiram. Also Sidney Rigdon. And Sidney, mm-hmm. who's not in Nauvoo uh, full-time anyway. Right. So with with William and Hiram, Joseph kind of broaches the subject. Can you tell us kind of what was their reaction? And then as rumors are spreading, what did William and Hiram do to kind of defend Joseph Smith against accusations of adultery, as, as you would say? William Law and Hiram Smith both seem to have reacted very strongly and very negatively to the idea of plural marriage even as Joseph may have broached the subject with him as he was trying to teach it, they were just adamantly, adamantly opposed to that idea and and very upset by it. Hiram is, during this period, he is preaching against what he believes to be wrong, which is this idea of spiritual wifery, of polygamy, as he knows John C. Bennett and others were introducing it. He's hearing rumors, and he associates it all with with these wild rumors and tales about immoral practices. And so as Hiram is vehemently preaching against those things, he thinks that he's defending Joseph, that that he's defending Joseph against these charges. What he doesn't know is the full story about the true principle as it's being introduced and, and taught by Joseph quietly under the surface. So it's it's kind of a, a difficult and, and confusing period here for Hiram and for us to go back and look at the sources and understand what everyone is talking about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, it seems like in this either the same meeting or shortly thereafter, Hiram is saying, you know, if it's not in the scriptures, it's not, it, I, I'm going to have nothing to do with it. And Brigham Young stands up and corrects him. Yeah, Joseph is distressed by Hiram's opposition. You know, in the revelation that Joseph received early in 1841, we have it as section 124 now, the Lord specifically says, I love Hiram for the integrity of his heart because he loves what is right before me. And in Hiram's opposition at first to what he thinks is wrong, it shows this integrity of his heart. He's standing up for what he really believes is, is right and is true. Joseph knows that because of that same characteristic of, of Hiram's heart, that, that he'd like to teach him this true principle, but he's got to overcome this opposition, this resistance that Hiram has. And so it's a really difficult position. So Joseph knows that Hiram's going to be preaching at this particular meeting, and I think knows or suspects that he'll, again, be strongly denouncing what Hiram understands to be polygamy or or those kinds of rumors. And so he asks Brigham Young to come to the meeting with him, and he wants Brigham Young to to preach after Hiram. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book um, about what Brigham says and the effect that it has on Hiram. Brigham stood and picked up the scriptures Hiram had set down. He laid the books in front of him one by one so everyone in the room could see. I would not give the ashes of a rye straw for these three books, he declared, without the living oracles of God. 
Lacking a Latter-day Prophet, he said, the saints were no better off than they were before God revealed the gospel through Joseph Smith. When he finished, Brigham could tell his sermon had moved Hiram. Rising to his feet, Hiram humbly asked the saints to forgive him. Brigham was right, he said. As valuable as the scriptures were, they were no substitute for a living prophet. I love that. That really provides a lot of context for this, because like you said, Hiram, he has a lot of integrity and he's very loyal to the scriptures and the gospel. Uh, But then Brigham reminds him that without the prophet, we don't have all of the proper perspective and Mm -hmm. the right context. And so I think that that's something we can use in our lives every day, just as a reminder that God has called a prophet for a reason. And historically, if you look through the Bible and Book of Mormon, it's the people who follow the prophet. They're the ones that are happy and safe and protected and, you know, have the information to live their lives. Yeah. And and Hiram knew that. Mm -hmm. Hiram was one of Joseph's best followers, if you will. You know, he believed in his brother from the beginning. And I don't think Brigham in any way meant to denigrate the scriptures or to dismiss the importance of the scriptures, but simply to emphasize that we needed both. And, And maybe in that moment, he was inspired to know that this was a a line of argument that would touch Hiram's heart, which it seems to have done. Mm-hmm. And within a short period of time, Hiram begins to have these, I don't know if they were promptings, doubts within himself about, you know, maybe there, there seems to be something going on here that I just don't know everything about. And so I think it speaks to that integrity. It speaks to his humility that he finally approaches Brigham and invites him to tell him, what he knows, and then that opens up the way for Hiram to be taught the truth about what's going on. In the book, we learn about one of Joseph Smith's marriages to uh, a woman by the name of Emily Partridge. And in her account of her marriage, the text in the book says she gave a brief and fragmented account. What does it mean that it was brief, that it was fragmented, and what are the sources how, how do we know this stuff other than rumor, conjecture, later? Tell, tell us about what we know. Yes, I think this is one of the most important things for people to understand about plural marriage in the Nauvoo era is simply how thin our base of sources is for understanding it, and especially of sources that date to the Nauvoo period. So much of what we do have is what we call retrospective sources, so accounts that people gave later, sometimes many decades later, when the context is different, other things have happened, they're interpreting their experiences in ways that they may not have at the time. So that's part of the challenge. And then just the small amount of material that we do have to help us understand plural marriage during this period. The, the sources that are used in this, in this chapter about Emily's experience are autobiographies that she wrote decades later. They're very short. Like a lot of 19th century people, she does not reflect very much. Emily actually reflects a little more than, than most other people, but, but even there, what we have from her is very minimal in helping us to understand what is she thinking, what is she feeling, how did they understand what was going on. And that's our challenge with so many of the people, well, most of the people that are involved at this, at this time. We just don't have their words, we don't have their perspectives, we don't know very much about it. 
Because do we have anything, like any accounts from Joseph or Emma? We have exactly nothing from Emma or Joseph firsthand about plural marriage. And I just think that that, we should say that full stop and then reflect about what that means. There are lots and lots of people who want to tell us what Joseph and Emma thought and felt and what happened. We all can't help speculating and drawing conclusions off of the few sources that we do have. But there's just this zone around Emma and Joseph when it comes to early plural marriage that we will never get inside of. And so I think that that leads us to need to really be humble and compassionate and extremely slow to make judgments. Well, and this discussion helps me because we're looking at this from almost 200 years ago and just thinking, you know, why don't we have all these answers? And, you know, Joseph was introducing it very slowly as he got more information. And there was something from the book that stood out to me that it says the Lord did not always give Joseph Smith exact instructions on how to obey the commandments. And so he, in some cases, was probably doing his best, especially in conversations that he was having with other people. But I think people now are expecting him to have those answers. Like, why don't we know those things? If we've looked at the history of the restoration at all, we know that this is how it worked. He's given the plates. He doesn't even know what to do with them. He's yeah. he's told to organize a church. He's told to ordain people or build a temple. And the exact blueprints for doing all of those things sometimes are not there at all. They come over time. And that certainly seems to be the case with, with plural marriage as well. And we should remember that Again, Joseph himself didn't leave any accounts, but those who knew him, who had been taught about this from him, reported that he himself said it was really difficult for him to overcome his initial shock and his initial resistance and hesitance to do something that just seemed so out of keeping with everything that that he had been taught and experienced. Well, and I'm so glad for the Saints book in explaining that a little bit more because I don't think people realize that. We say that we know that prophets are human beings and are not perfect. This is an illustration that that Joseph, he didn't wake up and get exact instructions for every day directly from the Lord. He had to he had to work through things and and use his best judgment and do his best a lot of the time. Lisa, there were there were two sisters. Um uh, the Partridge sisters, Emily and Eliza. Eliza, and both both of them, they were working in Joseph's home, or there, there was some association there. Yeah. Joseph approached them, and they uh, accepted his his proposal for plural marriage. And later, Emma selected the Partridge sisters to be plural wives. Can you unpack that for me just a little <laughs> bit? Because I was confused by that. This is honestly one of the most difficult early plural marriage stories to understand and make sense out of. And I think we should just be honest about that. It's a difficult story, again, because we don't know enough. We don't know enough about what Emma knew and when she knew it and, and how that related to the accounts that we do have from Emily, primarily Emily and Eliza. Remember, Emily and Eliza Partridge are the daughters of Bishop Edward Partridge, right. who has been you know, such a faithful 
man and then died early after the saints get to Nauvoo. And so they are, as, as was often the case for young women at this time, they go into the Smith household and, and, and help out and, and are domestic helpers there. This is all tied up in the question of Emma's struggle to accept and make peace with plural marriage and what it meant for her to share Joseph. She, there is no question that Emma had sacrificed and proven her faith over and over and over again. And for whatever reason, this was the thing that she just struggled with more than anything else. I, I always say I don't, we have so many stories of women like Emily and Eliza and other, other people who gained testimonies, gained witnesses of plural marriage and were able to move forward. For whatever reason, Emma was not able to get there. And we just don't know. We don't know why, and we don't know why not, and, and we don't know what she went through. But in 1843, Emma seems to have periods where she would be reconciled and she would struggle, but she would she would be okay with it for a little while. And it's during one of those periods where she seems to have agreed that, that Emily and Eliza could be sealed to Joseph. We think she didn't know that they already had been, but we don't know that for sure. But then as the chapters show later, she just can't take it and yeah. goes back on that. Let's listen to another clip here from the book. In this clip, we're going to hear Hiram, who tells Joseph Smith, just write the revelation down. Get it on paper. I'm sure I can convince Emma of it. You just need to get it down on paper. So he does that, and then let's listen here to this clip. Hiram returned to Joseph's office later that day and told his brother that he had never been talked to more severely in his life. When he read the revelation to Emma, she had become angry and rejected it. I told you you did not know Emma as well as I did, Joseph said quietly. He folded the revelation and put it in his pocket. Well, that didn't go the way Hiram expected yeah. it to go. Well, and at this point, so Hiram had accepted it because previously yes. he hadn't. So This is July, okay. and it's May where Hiram uh, is taught and, and accepts plural marriage. And we should note as well that this story comes secondhand from William Clayton's journal. So it's not even directly from Hiram himself. It's just an observer describing what happened and leaves an awful lot that we still don't know sure. about what happened. I think this, again, speaks to that idea of Hiram and his integrity. Once he is converted, he's converted, and he thinks that the truth will speak for itself and, and that that should be enough. It seems to have been for him. But evidently, this was another period where Emma was really, really struggling. And maybe it was a matter of bad timing when he approached her. We don't know. But it, it didn't work out for, for him with Emma that time. So there's a, there's a whole day of discussion the next day. They're trying to work through yeah. things. And let's listen here again just to one more little clip here from the book uh, that talks about that. Joseph and Emma wept as they spoke, but by the end of the day they had worked through their problems. To provide Emma additional financial security, Joseph deeded some property to her and their children, and after that fall he entered into no more plural marriages. So it seems that they've 
come to some kind of an understanding here. It's still super difficult. Yeah. We know that later Emma's feelings continue to kind of wax and wane. Eventually she asks the Partridge sisters to to move out of their home. Mm-hmm. I think there's another piece we need to, to listen to here, and that is what Emily Partridge had to say about Emma. I know it was hard for Emma and any woman to enter plural marriage in those days, she wrote, and I do not know as anybody would have done any better than Emma did under the circumstances. God must be the judge, she concluded, not I. And you know, that was the feeling of a lot of those women who knew Emma. If you look, uh, you know, later in the 19th century as they're in Utah, they're the, the women's leaders and they, they talk. For the most part, they're very circumspect in what they say about Emma, but they're also compassionate and tend to emphasize the respect and love that they had for her and what a great woman she was and just leave it in the hands of the Lord for how this was all handled. Um, that's between Joseph, Emma, and the Lord. And we, we loved those words so much that we made that the, t- the title for this chapter, God Must Be the Judge. And indeed, that's, of course, always the case. But particularly in the case of plural marriage and in Nauvoo, we have to leave some of those things due to the lack of sources and, right. and other reasons that we just have to turn it over to the Lord and put it in His hands. Recognizing that for us today, as you were saying, Shailen, that we come to this from a 21st century perspective— and it's, it's just very difficult for us to make sense out of. We can't recover the context that these people lived in and even what things like marriage meant to them and, and what women's position and prospects were and things like There's just a whole context that it's really impossible for us to recover. It's one of those difficult subjects where we just, like Ben says, have to leave it in the hands of the Lord I think we should also remember that in July of 1843, when this revelation is recorded, that we're talking about less than a year before Joseph dies. Right. And mm-hmm. so we read these chapters and we know what's coming, but they didn't. And who knows how things would have played out if there had been more time right. to maybe figure things out and work through it a little bit more. That's another unknown. As we wrap up today's episode, uh, I'd like to to introduce one more character here, stepping away from plural marriage for a moment. There's another woman and a group of saints, actually, that's traveling from the east. They're coming, making their way toward Nauvoo, and she's going to be a pretty important character, a member of the church in volume two of Saints, but we get to meet someone here, and her name is Jane Manning. What can you tell us about Jane Manning's story? Jane was a convert. She was from Connecticut, and she was a black woman, African-American. She was born free at a time of slavery, but she, as her story shows, she experienced a lot of the racism and the rejection and the poverty and difficulties that black people experienced during this time. When she gets to Nauvoo, the prophet and Emma actually take her in and let her live with them. And she becomes quite close to the family. And that's something that, as we'll see in future volumes, I think she's even going to be in volume three a little bit, maybe. But as we'll see in future volumes, that relationship that she has with Joseph and Emma is is a defining thing for her life and something that's really important to her. 
did she come to Nauvoo alone or did she have family members that came with her? She had some family members with her. She also had some members of the branch in Connecticut that she led. And and that's how Joseph characterized it. You're the leader of this branch. And she seems to have taken a, a leading role in, in, in bringing everybody and keeping them together. She has an amazing story. And uh, for our listeners out there, you can read a little bit about Jane Manning right now at history.lds.org. We have some of the stories um, about her and her later life. I think we also shouldn't forget, in these chapters, plural marriage takes up so much oxygen and is, is such a focus. There are several other really interesting and significant little stories that are in there. And you have, you have the Mons, you have the Pratts, you have Jane Manning and her, her family. And what those stories give us is a sense of just life in Nauvoo, that this plural marriage stuff is happening below the surface and for the most part, it's a small number of people that are involved. But we have thousands of saints in Nauvoo at this time. And what are they doing? They're planting gardens and building homes, and they're working on the temple, and they're sacrificing and going on missions, and they're living the gospel day to day to the best of their ability. And we, I think we need that perspective on Nauvoo, that it's a much bigger story than just this one thing that's going on under the surface at the time. And as always, you can read more about saints at saints.lds.org. You can listen to the chapters in the church history section in the Gospel Library app and read it there. And you can always download this podcast and many others at themormonchannel.org. Shaylin, back, Lisa Tate, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for listening out there. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. 